Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege and pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman is a progressive, national and internationally syndicated talk show host, the author of, among many other great books, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Talkers Magazine named him America's most important progressive host and has named his show one of the top ten talk radio shows in the country every year for a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Tom Hartman is also a New York Times bestselling author of 25 books translated into multiple languages. Tom Hartman, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. It's great being here with you. I'm a big admirer of your work, too. And, uh, you know, your book... Uh, War is a Lie is something that I think every American should read. I very much appreciate that. We won't be able to answer the question the way that uh, this book does, and I highly recommend that everybody get many copies and hand them out of The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. But but briefly, what does the Second Amendment actually mean? Well, the, 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 the history of the Second Amendment goes back um, to 1787 when they, when they were writing the Constitution. There was a, a deep and abiding fear of the army um, maintaining its existence when the country was at peace. Uh, and the reason why was because so many of the founders and framers, you know, they were all students of history, particularly European history. And they knew that country after country after country had gone down in flames because the military, you know, came home from, from military excursions or fighting wars or whatever. And we're sitting around with nothing to do, and so they said, hey, let's just take over the government. I mean, you know, classic example, Pinochet in Chile. And, and so they didn't want there to be a standing army during times of peace. And so the idea that they came up with to replace the state was that each state would have a militia. Uh, you would have essentially a draft in each state where every man between 17 and 47 was the typical age range, depending varied from state to state, would have to be a member of that militia and, you know, would show up periodically and, and, and uh, they would hold their guns in an armory and all that kind of stuff. And uh, if the country was invaded, they would, they would uh, you know, come out, the, the, the militias would be called up. And you can actually find this language in, the, in Article 1. Yeah, and, and, and uh, that the Army could only be funded for two years. Anything else can be funded forever. But the Army, all, every two years, the Congress has to decide whether they want to continue to have an Army. So there was that. And then, and then if you're not going to have an Army, what do you do? Well, you have all these state militias. And the Second Amendment was about the state militias. And originally, the Second Amendment said for the, for the protection, for the security of a free nation. And at the Virginia Ratifying Convention in 1789, the largest slaveholder in that state was Patrick Henry, and he got up and gave this big, long speech about how, you know, if uh, if our militia, the, the militias in the South, in Virginia, Georgia, North and South Carolina, were also the slave patrols, and they were also the police. And uh, and I think that that may explain why one out of three people in America who are killed by strangers are killed by cops. But in any case, he stood up and he said, you know, if our slave patrol militia is called up during time of war and particularly if we get a president who's uh, an abolitionist, and he does this intentionally, and they send our militia off to Massachusetts or up to the Canadian border or whatever, uh, you know, it'll be the end of us because, you know, the slaves would rise up, and, and they were constantly. I mean, there were so many slave, uh, you know, uprisings and revolts but that were almost never reported. You know, you've got to, you know, go back through original sources to find them. So anyhow, Patrick Henry got up and he said, you know, I'm not going to uh, have Virginia ratify this 
Constitution, if you don't change that Second Amendment to explicitly protect our state militia, our slave patrol. And Madison said, well, I think you're being paranoid. Uh, and Henry was like, and Henry was joined by George Mason. I mean, all three of them were, had, were slaveholders, plantation owners. Yeah. And, um, give me slavery and, uh, or give me death, right? Yeah, yeah. Patrick Henry famously, give me liberty or give me death. So what, uh, to, to satisfy Patrick Henry and get the Constitution passed, Madison changed the language from for the security of a free nation uh, to for the security of a free state to make it very clear that the militias of the states were under the regulation of the states, not under the regulation of the federal government. Right. The well-regulated militia. And the, and the early drafts of the Second Amendment included no standing army for the for the federal government, but also the right to conscientious objection from military service and the civilian rule over the military. I mean, what is all that stuff doing in an amendment that's about your individual personal right to own a, an automatic weapon? Right, and that's the point, David, is that you know nobody at that time, none of the founders or framers, nobody at that time um, envisioned the need for a law that, that articulated an individual right to have a gun for self-defense. I mean, it was kind of a given that you could, you could have a gun for self-defense, but guns back then were few and far between. You know, a gun could cost as much as a house. Um, they were you know, precision equipment that was handmade. They were extremely expensive. And uh, and if they you know if they were used frequently, they had to be replaced frequently because the, the steel was not that hard, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you know the the so-called individual right to own a gun, which uh, Scalia discovered in the Second Amendment in the Heller decision in 2008, is complete BS. It's uh, as the four dissenters point out with some real precise, real precise language, which I quote in the book. This was just you know Scalia trying to. You know, throw a bone to the to the weapons manufacturers who who fund the Republican Party. So, what does it what does it change then? If are we able through that understanding to undo what the Second Amendment has turned into? I'm not sure that undo is the right word. I think you know that it is still possible, even with Heller standing, because it's not going to get overturned anytime soon. You've got you know an even more conservative court now than you had in 2008. But uh, even with Heller's standing, uh, you know, common sense gun regulation, and of course the Second Amendment uses the word regulation, common sense gun regulation um, need not be super complex. I mean, the House of Representatives just passed legislation to regulate gun bump stocks and silencers and, and uh, uh, you know, just and increase background checks and things like that. None of those are things that would be constitutionally, um, even, in the, even in the context of Heller, would be you know, a violation of uh, the Supreme Court's decision. My specific suggestion, I've got several in the book, but I think the, the, the keystone, the corner piece uh, suggestion is that we regulate guns the way we regulate cars. In the 1920s, you didn't have to have a driver's license to drive a car. And as a result, there were a lot of people, you know, and cars were starting to proliferate. And cars aren't designed to kill people. They're designed for transportation, but they're very capable of killing people. You know, a thousand pounds of steel going down the road at 50 miles an hour we'll do serious damage. And so what we came up with was this three-part system where, number one, from time of manufacture to time of destruction, it is registered. You have a VIN number in a car, a vehicle identification number on a gun. You've got a serial number. And all the guns made have serial numbers. So the, And every year you have to go back and re-register it with the state. So there's always a chain of custody. We know who's responsible, ultimately responsible for each gun, just like we do for each car, number one. Number two, 
if you want to drive a car, you have to prove to the state, and it varies from state to state exactly how they do this, but it's all broadly the same principle. You have to prove to the state that you, A, know the laws regarding driving, that is, you take a written test, and B, that you actually know how to drive. You, you, uh, you have a, a person from the state sit in a car and you drive around and prove to them that you know how to drive a car. Um, in, in many states, the, if you want to get a concealed carry permit to carry a gun, you have to do the same thing. You have to, uh, you know, you have to go before the state and show them not only that you know how to shoot, but that you know the laws surrounding guns. Um, that should simply be expanded to all gun owners in all states, in my opinion. Um, it, this is not rocket science. We already have the bureaucracies for it, um, and it's and it's not a an overly intrusive thing to do. We do it with cars, and we're all quite used to it. And then number three, liability insurance, and this is the Republican free market solution. You know, in in a in a very real way, we you know the government is not particularly good at predicting crimes or predicting cr- who's going to be criminal and who isn't. And frankly, we don't want them to. We don't want the government looking over our shoulders and, and you know, thinking, you know, is this person going to commit that kind of crime, et cetera. The government mostly, uh, you know, tracks down people after they've already committed crimes. But the insurance industry is actually very good at this. And they, they go with things like your your, co- your high school or college, you know, records, your, your whether or not you have a criminal record, um, you know, what kind of job you have, what kind of income you have. They use all these different things to determine what your risks are. So, you know, if you're going to buy life insurance, they're going to ask how old you are and what kind of health you're in. You know, they're, 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 going, to, and they're going to ask that, but they're also going to find it out independently. And your life insurance premium will depend on the probability of you dying. And, you know, if you're healthy and 25, it'll be a whole different thing than if you're 60 and not healthy. Um, similarly with health insurance, they, they look at your health and they have access to all your medical records and everything. And so they define the price of the health insurance based on the probability of you getting sick. Um, gun insurance is available, has been for decades, and the insurance companies, uh, liability insurance, the, the gun co- and the insurance companies basically look at all the risk factors that would predict the odds that you would use a gun for homicide or suicide or that you might accidentally have a death in your home because you're not, you know, taking care of things. And so this is a, a, you know, essentially a free market solution, just like with cars. I mean, if, if you're a, if you're a good driver, you can get cheap car insurance. But if you've got three DUIs, good luck. It's going to cost you ten thousand bucks a year if you find somebody to write a policy. And it would be the same thing with guns. It's, you know, so you know, why don't we just take this common sense stuff that we have been doing in the United States for almost almost a hundred years now, and without any problem. And apply it to guns. It just seems to me like such a simple and obvious thing to do. And are these steps that a state could take, or need they be yes. federal? No, I think these should be uh, state-based. You could have federal legislation that would require the states to do this, uh, and you know there could be a threat like if they don't, they lose their federal highway funds or they lose something. You know, the federal government's very good at figuring out ways to essentially force states to do things. But um, each state already has these bureaucracies in place. They, they have them all in terms of the DMV kind of stuff, in terms of people trying to get concealed carry permits and things like that. Um, so it, 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 this is not something that would be difficult to do state by state. What, based on, based on steps that other countries have taken, uh, given the, the well-kept secret that there are other humans on this planet, uh, what, would, what would you expect the benefits uh, to be of, of taking these uh, seemingly incredibly uh, reasonable steps? Well, what we found when we started doing this with cars is that fewer people died. 
And, uh, you know, and I think that we would see the same thing with guns. We know that there is a uh, virtually a linear relationship between the number of guns circulating in a society and the number of gun deaths. We had 40, almost 40,000 gun deaths in the United States last year and hundreds of thousands of gun injuries. And, uh, and that, in large part, is because we are 4% of the world's population and we have 50% of all the guns in civilian hands in the world right here in the United States. And so I think some of these reasonable measures would, would uh, you know, obviously they're not going to eliminate guns. I'm not talking about gun bans, but um, they're going to cause people to treat guns more respectfully, more carefully. They're going to have to if they want to get insurance, um, you know, lock them up when they're not being used, things like that. And, 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 the, and be less likely to just casually start collecting a dozen or two dozen guns because you can buy them at the local gun show with cash and, and no check. Uh, you know, no background check or anything, and, uh, and and thus, you know, you'd have a smaller likelihood that these little mini arsenals that are developed in people's homes that end up uh, typically or often, you know, kids killing other kids by accident or, you know, whatever would uh, would be that way. I, I, you know, it's just it's a big step in the in the right direction. I also in the book call for uh, a ban on semi-automatic weapons, both rifles and pistols. Um, uh, you know, we did just fine up into the uh, 80s and 90s. Even our police departments all used revolvers um, uh, up until the 80s and 90s. And then the semi-automatic weapons came in in a big way on television, and pretty soon every police department wanted to have them. Um, we could debate whether or not police should have them, but these are weapons of war. These were developed as weapons of war, semi-automatic weapons. And uh, I don't think, frankly, they should be in civilian hands, but that's a little more radical than than the uh you know let's treat it like but i think those are the two main solutions but these are all things that other countries have done it doesn't all have to be hypothetical speculation what would happen if some government tried this right you cite an, an example from yeah. australia in the book right yeah absolutely david in in 1996 in uh in port townsend part of australia there was a, a horrific slaughter and uh, the Australian press actually showed some of the pictures of the people who had been shot, which just shocked people. Um, we don't do this here. Uh, the Parkland kids have got this hashtag now, show my picture. Uh, in fact, they're putting it on their driver's licenses. So, and what they're saying is, if I'm killed with a gun, please show the picture. It's, it's the Emma Till story. You know, Emma Till's mother decided that she was going to have an open casket. When that picture of that badly mutilated, beaten young man uh, went national off the cover of Jet magazine. It created, you know, in a large part, you know, I don't say created, but really stimulated the, the modern civil rights movement. The same thing, I think, if if we were to see, you know, in the movies, somebody gets shot and they just kind of fall over, or maybe a little bit of blood trickles out. In reality, with, particularly with these high-powered uh, guns, you know, like the AR-15s and things, um, you know, well, in Park in the in Newtown. Some of those kids, they couldn't identify them. Their heads were blown into pieces. There was brain matter all over the wall. You know, arms and legs were literally shot right off. Um, it's uh, it, that's what guns do. And and when they don't, and when somebody isn't killed by a gun, they don't just lay on the ground and go ouch. You know, like they do in the movies. You know, they they run around screaming and there's blood spraying and they're freaking out. And and you know, let's show this. Let's show the reality of what these gun manufacturers have inflicted on us. So. You know, that's that's uh, and, and Australia did this and and, uh, and they saw it and they said, OK, that's it. Within one year, they had a nationwide ban on not a complete ban, but made it much harder to get semi-automatic weapons. 
and uh, went to something similar to my suggestion of registration, license, and insurance for guns. And the result of that was a 77% decrease in gun suicide. And I forget the homicide rate uh, decrease, but it was uh, my what the number stuck in my head is 38%. You've got the book. It's, it's in the book. Um, but it was substantial, and it stayed that way. Um, so, you know, this is, this is uh, the public health benefits of gun regulation are unambiguous. And, and, and who's against it? Again, the steps you're proposing sound I- incredibly reasonable. What's the, what is the NRA? Uh, what, what position do gun lobbyists take uh, on such proposals? Well, until the mid-70s, the NRA agreed with me on most of this stuff. The NRA was in favor of reasonable gun uh, restrictions. Ronald Reagan was a champion for gun control. In fact, he signed the Mumford Law in, uh, in California, you know, after, after the, the Black Panthers uh, walked into, into the California legislature with guns, and the legislators all freaked out. And within a few years, they had a law in place. Um, Reagan changed his tune. George Herbert Walker Bush was a big fan of gun, gun control. But in the mid-'70s, the NRA was basically, uh, which had been a sports organization up to that point, and helped the Boy Scouts and stuff like that. In the mid-'70s, the NRA basically went through a takeover, an internal takeover, and their board got filled up with people who were representing the interests of the weapons manufacturers rather than the the sporting shooters, you know, the hunters and and the skeet shooters and target practice people. And um, the consequence of that is uh, they started these manufacturers, making guns is very profitable. Guns are very expensive. A decent gun can cost you a thousand bucks. And, and uh, these weapons manufacturers started pouring money into the political campaigns of people who were willing to do their, their bidding uh, or pouring money against the campaigns of people who were trying to regulate guns in a pretty straightforward process. And, and they've been doing it ever since. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hartman, let me ask you about the the Parkland uh, young people whose activism inspires uh, so much because I have I've I'm very torn about it uh, because they're so wonderfully advocating passionately and appropriately uh, against gun violence. But the the young man, their classmate who shot up their school was was trained by the U.S. Army in their cafeteria and was wearing his junior ROTC shirt. And they won't mention that, and they put out videos saying the military should have guns, police should have guns, but these guys shouldn't, you know. And I, I don't know why it is that that we can't mention that the U.S. military is training children in schools across the country with these guns. Yeah, it, it is it is bizarre, David, and I agree with you. And and um, it should give us all pause. I think the reason why the Parkland kids are not taking that on is they've got a huge lift just getting reasonable gun control legislation passed. And if they were to start going after ROTC, um, you know, I, I mean, I remember the wars around ROTC back in the 60s at Michigan State University. And in fact, the one guy in, in our SDS chapter who was constantly arguing that we should go burn down the ROTC building uh, we discovered later it was a state police informant. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I think they just have just, they're kind of, you know, let's do first things first. But I can't speak for them. I'm, you know, I've never, uh, you know, I, I don't know them. But that's my best. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, they're they're doing counterproductive things as well. You know, the military should have lots of guns. That's their message. Uh, but yeah. the, I also wanted to ask you because you put you said this number earlier, almost forty thousand deaths. Uh, the mass shootings that we hear so much about, uh, and perhaps rightly so, they are horrific and they are unique to the United States. But that that's a very small drop in that bucket, isn't it? it, it that's not the bulk of the problem. Right. Uh, 40,000 deaths is pretty terrible. About half of them are suicides by gun. And by the way, this is, like I said earlier, one of the things that Australians noticed when they regulated guns was that the suicide rates went down, too. Um, but also there's hundreds of thousands of people who are simply wounded by guns. Those, those wounds are serious stuff if the gun is anything bigger than just a twenty two. Yeah. I, I think suicides went down dramatically in Australia, uh, apparently yes. without... Yeah, they stayed all, down. Yeah. So without and, and and the reason why is is fairly obvious if you think about it. I mean, you know, most people when they commit suicide, um, you know, if they slit their wrists or if they take pills or something like that, there's uh, there's this thing uh, Louise and I used to call the "oh crap" test. Only we used a little more obscene word, and you know, to try and figure out what you really want to do. And if you're trying to decide, you know, uh, do I want to buy this car or that car? Do I want to go to this restaurant or that restaurant? You just assign one of them to head the other details. You flip a coin. And at the moment that you look at the coin flip, one of two thoughts goes to your head. Oh, great. Or, oh, crap. And, and that, that taking of an overdose of pills or that cutting of the, of the wrist, that, that then leads to that, that, oh, crap test, you know. And, and the majority of people at that point will say, you know, okay, I've just decided I don't want to die. And so they'll go to the ER or they'll call somebody or whatever. And, you know, most suicides are not successful. But, and suicide is very often a very impulsive act. But people who try to commit suicide with a gun um, are typically instantaneously successful, and there is no going back. So if we take the gun out of the equation, the number of suicides actually goes down. Yeah. The... Uh, the other point you bring up in your book uh, that that goes to the to the problem that this that this isn't just about uh, the public misunderstanding, but about our political system being corrupt. Uh, you you propose the solutions toward getting the money out of U.S. politics in the chapter before mm-hmm. you propose the solutions for the for the guns. Uh, do you do you think that's needed? Do we need to? Uh, clean out the financial corruption first? Oh, that's the cancer at the core of everything. I mean, that's the, the, the mechanism that the NRA has used to buy politicians is the 1976 Buckley decision, the 2010 Citizens United decision, and a few others, you know, First National Bank versus Bilotti and, and McCutcheon and whatnot. And, you know, these decisions said that money is protected under the First Amendment, spending money for political purposes. And it's just, you know, it's wrong. It's 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 a wrong thing. It should not be, and uh, so yeah, I support the efforts of the uh, public citizen and and uh, move to amend dot org and other groups to amend the constitution to reverse the Supreme Court and say no, uh, money is not uh, protected speech and corporations are not people. We need to we need to change that. And and you suggest a, a couple other alternatives. One, getting a different Supreme Court, but the other, getting a Congress with really the nerve to to act and to legislate uh, and not yes. defer to the Supreme Court. I mean, Congress could uh, take serious actions on this and many other things if it simply had the nerve, could it not? 
You're absolutely right, David. And and again, that gets us back to money in politics. I mean, one of the problems is so many of these people in Congress are just scared to death that, you know, if, if they say or do the wrong thing, if they if they upset or anger the, uh, you know, the, the weapons industry or the fossil fuel industry or whatever, that, that uh, they will lose their own funding and somebody who's willing to suck up to and be a toady for these industries uh, will then start getting that money, and will they'll end up out of out of out of a job. And uh, you know, we just need we need public financing of elections. Bernie's been dre- beating this drum for years. I completely agree. And uh, you know, we've had some attempts at it. We had some good government stuff that came out of the after the Nixon uh, uh, debacle, and uh, you know, including you know, check the box on your tax return and send some money for public financing. We need to expand those things. We need to make them, you know, larger and more accessible and more meaningful, at least as a starting point. But, but the the ultimate goal, and really where a lot of our effort, I, you know, I wrote a book about this called Unequal Protection: The Rise of Corporate Dominance and the Theft of Human Rights. The ultimate goal has to be to strip corporations of their personhood and to uh, and to uh, reduce the ability of billionaires to basically own politicians, political parties, even entire political systems and states. What about the, we have just a few minutes left, what about the financial corruption uh, down the road at the NRA? Uh, I mean, I, not that I really care how much they overpay their executives, but why are they tax exempt? Uh, why are they uh, allowed to uh, exist uh, in, in this political system at all? Yeah, the Johnson Amendment, um, which was passed back in the 1950s to the tax code uh, by, by Senator, then Senator Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, largely for churches, but it covers all nonprofits, says that, you know, if a nonprofit uh, agency does not engage in politics, then we will subsidize them. We will pay for their police protection, we'll pay for their fire protection, um, you know, we'll pay for the roads to get to them and from them, we'll you know, all these things that, that typically taxes pay for, they are tax-exempt. They don't have to pay taxes on their income and on their revenue. And, um, you know, with the NRA in the last election uh, apparently laundered $30, 40000000 bucks, a lot of it coming out of Russian oligarchs, and, and you know, overtly in support of Donald Trump. With regard to the NRA, though, it seems to me that they not only uh, openly promote electoral candidates, uh, but they put out uh, ridiculous but horrific videos promoting wars with Iran and race riots in the United States and so forth, uh, stuff that if I tried to put the opposite point of view on a on a billboard in Washington, D.C., it would be rejected as political. Uh, I mean, all of that right. stuff is political by some definition. Yeah, and you could use, you could lose your nonprofit status. I mean, the whole thing of nonprofit status is that you're not supposed to be using, uh, you know, if you're going to be subsidized by by the government, by all of us, if we as a society are going to subsidize your organization by giving you nonprofit status, then don't engage in politics. And, and um, the churches, many of the evangelical churches, are openly defying that right now and reveling in it. And the NRA has been defying that for years. And you know, eventually, hopefully, we'll get an administration that's willing to start enforcing the tax laws, but we don't have that right now. Uh, very true. Uh, we're speaking with Tom Hartman. The book is The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. I cannot recommend it uh, more highly. Uh, Tom, uh, where where should people go to to follow up and keep in touch with you and get the book, and and what should they do next? 
Well, the book's available in any bookstore, wherever you buy books. It should be you know, pretty easy to find. Um, I, there's information about it and about the book tour that I'm doing right now uh, at my website at TomHartman.com. However you spell it, we'll get you there. And, uh, you know, spread the word. We need to, we need to wake people up to the, the, the history of this country, the karmic burden that we have, and the work that we have to do to overcome that, um, and what we can do, what we can actually reasonably do to uh, to dial back this insane gun violence that's unique to the United States among developed nations. Very well said. Tom Hartman, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. David, and let me again please mention how much I love your book, um, War is a Lie, and how I think everybody should be reading that, too. Um, you, 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 know, you do such a great job with this stuff, and uh, I, I'm really pleased and honored to be on your program. Thank you for inviting me. Much appreciated. Thanks, Tom. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.